So after racing internationally for a number of years and competing at the Rio Olympics, Jake and I realized that each athlete has an epic story and a journey behind every performance, and there's so much more to the Olympics than just that final race. We know the passion we have for sport is shared by thousands of others around the world, and we want to bring these stories to you. On The Rose Show, we have a look behind the scenes to understand the journey each athlete has taken to get to the Olympics, and we look into the years of work and dedication and the hardships an athlete has to endure to have a chance of standing on that greatest sporting stage in the world and a chance for glory. Welcome to The Rose Show. We are your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jay Green. This is a podcast where we're going to be going into everything related to sport and performance, and we're also going to talk a bit about rowing. South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks down barriers. My passion winning to be the best. The best is something we strive for. Sacrifice. The role is high fit. Compassion. Great. Passion. Fiction. Ultimate goal. Glory. Relentless training. Pain. Pain. <laughs> Hello ladies and gents, boys and girls. Um, welcome to The Row Show. Another epic episode we have in store for you guys today. Uh, it's just me on the intro, but uh, Jake will catch up to us. Uh, just now when the when the episode gets started so yeah welcome to the show so today we have yet another legendary guest on the show the what farmer sam lock uh, sam is an australian olympic rower world medalist and he also holds two records on the concept two erg for the thousand meter and the 24 hour but i'll get into that just now we chat to sam about cranking watts breaking records and running through graveyards naked so definitely is quite an interesting uh, little chat that we have with him in the beginning, we talk about his beginnings in the sport, how he got into rowing, and why he chose rowing over rugby, seeing as though he was uh, the right size for rugby at school. Then we talk about his transition into the the Princeton system overseas um, in the USA, and coming back into the, the Aussie Olympic team, making the eight, racing the eight at two Olympics, and then retiring from uh, rowing but carrying on on the erg, where he gets into into the the two world records that he set the one is for the 1k which is a 239 which is a 119 average speed for for the two for, for 1k and that is uh, rather insane if you've done any time on the erg and the other one is also pretty bloody impressive which is the 24 hour by two people where sam and matt ryan hold 153 for 24 hours and that's a distance of uh, 380 k's in 24 hours yeah, he talks a lot about uh, about how they did that and uh, and all sorts of of other interesting facts. What else? He also gets into the training philosophy and his strategies for for different training. I mean, he's done a lot of different sport in his in his time uh, rowing. Obviously, a lot of ergo, and now he's stepping into some powerlifting and and doing some interesting stuff there. So we chat to him about the transitions, about the different training in uh, in all the different sports, and obviously. He gets a, gives us some exciting and eye-opening answers to our quick-fire questions. So, very, very cool. And, yeah, I hope you enjoy. Just before we get going, though, um, once again, please share the show. We, we're starting to grow. We're getting some traction, and we're really starting to lift off the off the ground and, and starting to build these, uh, getting more people to listen to the show. So, thanks for, for helping us all out. But, yeah, I still need some more, so just keep... Ask your mates if they're listening to the show, um, telling people about the show that maybe haven't heard about it, and telling other people how to use the show. You know, the podcast is not the, the easiest uh, 
thing to listen to and i think a lot of people know what a podcast is but don't know how how to get access to it every week so yeah just uh show someone how to how it all works and what app you're using and that'll be a huge help also uh just open itunes and go give us a review give us five stars i'm sure um i'm sure we're worth it i hope and give us a review and we'll read them out uh if you give us any good ones so the latest one from uh stace paddy uh, a great show awesome to hear the insights of the guests as well as the race reviews of the hosts interesting even for someone who's not involved in the sport that much and a lot of useful insights into performing at the highest level and it can be translated into any sport or career so thanks very much stacy patty so that's uh, that's how that's the standard there guys um i'm surprised they didn't say anything horrible about jake but Obviously, he's just doing a good enough job there. Cool. Um, that's enough of me babbling on. Let's get into the show. My name is Sam Locke. I'm Australian. I know this is a, a rowing podcast, so uh, I rode at two Olympic Games, both in the men's eight. Uh, I won two bronze medals at the World Championships. Uh, currently, I have the 1,000-meter record for on the Concept 2 uh, and one half of the 24-hour record uh, on the ERG as well. And uh, I've coached rowing. Uh, I am interested in the sport as an athlete and from the physiological standpoint, and I'm happy to be here. Of course. Thanks, Sam. It's awesome to have you on. So to start things off, the first question, uh, we just, you know, nice and easy. We wanted to ask, ask you, what are your favorite sessions to get done and what are your least favorite sessions of training uh well i think it, it depends on what i'm training for so uh, historically I've, I've enjoyed you know, versions of aerobic training whether that's just sort of steady state on the water or on the erg or uh just cross training on the bike running all of that stuff but at the moment i'm training for powerlifting so i don't do any of that and the idea of doing any of that um, is seems atrocious to me. Like the the idea of just going for like a normal twenty kilometer row uh, would be barely, it would be somewhat impossible at this stage. Um, I've always liked lifting weights. Uh, I enjoy yoga, so all of those varieties. All right. Um, the next one. So I guess there was the the question was is like what are the favorite training sessions do I like? Right. So yeah, yeah I like yeah. lifting weights basically. Lifting weights. <laughs> And yoga would be my favorites at the moment. Okay. So, I mean, um, you, you've now changed quite a few and you've done a lot of rowing then onto the erg and now onto the powerlifting. But uh, what, yeah. what habit have you adopted in the last uh, few months that, has, uh, that you haven't done before and that's most benefited your training? Something I've added in within maybe the last year is just using the sauna. Um, I sort of, I, I, it's been used throughout time. Uh, is particularly still used a bunch in, in Finland and in Russia. Uh, this is not a new technology, um, but the science behind it is emerging. And anecdotally, the way it feels to me, I feel good having done it. And so I incorporate that regularly, in part because I have easy access to a sauna, whereas that's not always the case for, for a lot of people. Yeah, I think because uh, we, I think we, it would be such a mission for us to get to a sauna. So yeah. <clears throat> I think that's yeah, something and, that. And at times, I've just, I've just had no 
sauna available, but the, the I have a most of the time I train in my garage, but there's a gym down the road, and they have like I, I go there to use dumbbells and lap pull downs and stuff that I don't have at home, and they've got a sauna there, and um, it's mostly a bunch of Russian dudes that hang out in there, which is sort of what you'd hope for in a sauna, I guess. <laughs> I see. Um, and then there's the next one, Sam, I was really interested because in, in reading, reading your book, you speak about tapering, um, and you warn the reader of starts because when you feel super fresh, you, you like to do all sorts of things, um, that you shouldn't really be doing. Like, let's say playing touch rugby or going on long walks or whatever, yeah. as an example of caution, you say that you once ran through a graveyard naked. We're very interested to hear the, the story behind that. Yeah, it's a, it's a true story. And it was, um, have either of you guys raced in Sydney at the Olympic course? No, uh, no, never. So there, there, there's, um, it's not surrounded by much, but what there is or is, was, I'm not sure I haven't been there in a while and you can't really see it, but it's just past the finish line. I mean, within the next kilometer, there's, a small accommodation that's next to a graveyard. And I, I, I mean, I, I remember doing it and I, I can't remember why, but if I, if I think about why, if I think about the best intentions, I think it was, it was before racing and it would have been to break the tension or, or to I think indicate maybe, okay, we're just, we're going to, we're going to hang loose this regatta. Like it's, I think at that point, we had a very good season and so every race that we were going into we were expected to win and um i think it was just like okay we're gonna you know we're gonna, we're gonna be we're gonna be ourselves we're gonna be bold we're not gonna be um encumbered by you know the the pressure of the situation but that all that being said i could have just totally be having a dickhead or or wanted attention or, or who knows i mean i i say this to kids that i've kids young men that i've coached like you guys are, are idiots and i and i know that because i was a bigger idiot than all of you and that and that may have been one example yeah <laughs> well we've we've all actually done well i i haven't ran through a graveyard naked but i i have played touch rugby before and for the next three days before competition and for the next three days i was so bloody stiff and i also lost a toenail so that was unpleasant <laughs> Yeah, people people break stuff. I remember one year this was at school. Um, a couple of kids were running around the the boat shed, and a guy caught his the inside of his thigh on the stern of a boat that was being rigged or derigged, and it took a chunk out of his leg. And then that was it. There was no head of the river. He was out. Uh, I had my the stroke of my crew in college shatter his jaw the week of. I've had a, a bunch every year when you coach a squad, there's someone that goes down in a school season. Um, you, you guys will remember Duncan Free breaking his leg. Yeah. That yeah. happens all the time. So you have to run that balance between not wanting to wrap yourself in cotton wool, um, but also, and especially when you're younger, it seems, you know, your risk assessment is just, is just not the same. You just have to just make your choices consciously, which is tends to be what I recommend because it was something that, did not come naturally to me. Yeah, because I mean, even at uh, even at Rio, the the Kiwi pair they had crashed um, crashed on on their bike. Eric had crashed on his bike just the last session before leaving for Rio. So 
I think it's this happens yeah. a lot. I mean, like that's such a it's such a crucial time that you, as you say, you're feeling fresher and there's just so much more that you go, you want to do, and then, but that's where things can go wrong very quickly. The only people that should be cycling before the Olympic Games is cyclists. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So every, if everyone else, it's it's optional. Like, I, and I, I've, I've if you if you've read my book, then I talk about this. It's just that's if if that's your sport, then you have to accept those risks. And there's that's absolutely part of it. But when when you're a rower, there's you can replicate all the benefits with, except for you know the scenery, just the auxiliary. Like this is a nice thing to do to go for a bike ride, but too dangerous for me. Yeah. For, for me, for in preparing for the sport of rowing. Yeah, because I mean we we've had too many collarbones and and broken bones to. We usually stop cycling around uh, March April. Like there's a lot of cycling up to then, and then it sort of starts to to taper down because the risk is just becomes too high yeah absolutely i think you you put it quite quite well in your book uh, by saying is the is the juice worth worth the squeeze yeah yeah and that's uh that tends to be you know uh, the question often is you know is is this is this worth it that can come to you know training if you are making choices about what training you should do knowing that every every option you pick is at the cost of another option and it's you don't have a limitless reservoir of energy you have an amount and it needs to be expended in the most useful way possible so whether you're going to do xyz should it always comes through that lens of is it you know it's a cute way of saying is it worth it yeah, so talking about uh, making the right choices and 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 never and never really knowing exactly how things are going to pan out. What notable failure that that you went through contributed to to a later success? Okay, um, well, I, I feel like every everything I know is is informed heavily informed by failure. So all of any underperformance I've had has led to better performances in the future. I've, I've, I've sort of happily failed and I've, I've learned to become more comfortable, comfortable with this because um, I, I insist on learning something, learning something from it. And it might be technical uh, in the heat of battle, it might be preparing for something, it may have been you know, poor decision-making uh, say if I if I were were the person that broke my leg or got stabbed on the, by, on the in the in the fire by the stern of a boat, I would have hoped that that would be a situation that I would have learned from. I mean, I, I remember breaking my wrist, uh, breaking my hand at college, punching someone, and then the lesson there is, hey, maybe don't punch someone. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right? yeah. like <laughs> um, it's a fairly logical sort of process and sometimes it's more obvious than others but i've had there's certain lessons that have taken a long time to learn i mean the most obvious one for me would be my tendency when when rowing was to always do more training more more stuff more add more in because i thought that everything was additive but at a certain point things can be a distraction and they can also drain on your resources and it's not just a matter of whether you're overtraining or not. It's more a question of um, it, it, is some of your auxiliary training uh, 
reducing your your capacity to bring your absolute best stuff when you need it for that you're fresh enough to push hard as required i mean if you're so suppressed because your overall training fatigue is high because you just spend the entire day training then you know maybe maybe you're not maybe it's a little out of whack and for me i I try to emphasize rest more um primarily because of the the sport that i'm doing now primarily because i'm a little bit older but um you know the main reason is that it's just smarter and part of being smarter is learning from your mistakes but that's also i mean you 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 have to learn that over time that's not i mean most school kids especially uh, good athletes that come out of school are usually on the other end of the spectrum really pushing looking for more looking for more and as they grow older then they learn how to how to control that training and that that load i think it takes a long time to to get right yeah yeah i think i i I was always in for rowing my i i I was never um well well built for the sport like physiologically anatomically i'm not i wouldn't have come through any talent id program so my mentality was always that it needs to do more because if i did just the same as the more like my very first national team i was it had james Tompkins and drew Ginn on it and i'm like okay well, if i did just the same as those guys how then would i surpass their level yeah so talking about the the anatomy on the the world rowing profile for sam Locke, it says that you're 198 centimeters <laughs> By most means, that's quite a quite a big. Uh, that's ideal. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I I don't. That's that's always been the case. Whereas anywhere else, I've had people in, t- tell me, you know, via the DMs on Instagram, that that I'm 198 centimeters tall because the the bio on World Rowing <laughs> yeah. says that it is. And I like, well, I can insist that I'm not. Um, I think most people, when I there's an expectation at all be taller than I am but all my friends are taller than me um it's yeah I'm six I'm 186 centimeters yeah. and a bit depending on the day <laughs> yeah. yeah so that's me and you are very similar yeah Lawrence is also uh, 187 187 yeah but maybe right, this- well it, yeah it, it all there's 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 some of us but there's not many no no, no for sure um no. moving moving on to the next question Sam we you know, in this podcast, we're going to talk a lot about performance, um, and for you, that's you've you you can you can draw upon many uh, many facets to speak about uh, this question. But we wanted to ask you, what does performance mean to you? Performance for me, it's the ability to execute a task at a specific point in time. So it's a it's a a display of capacity. Um, so it's, it's the ability to produce what you're capable of. Yeah, no, that's, that makes sense. Just like the, the Olympics that we train for and every year that it, when it comes down to it, you need to, you know, exactly where it is in, in your timeline and you need to get on the line and produce the goods. Yeah, but, but it's, 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 it's what you can produce, but it's when it's the ability to do it at a certain point in time. It's if you're, if you're a rower, you, you you have to train in order to go fast on race day, but you could be slow in training. You could be slow every day and then show up on, on race day and win. 
it's about it's about performing when it counts. Yeah, yeah. That uh, that so the, being... the, the performance is in in front, you know, like when it when it matters. So uh, talking, so now going on, we're talking a bit about rowing. So let's uh, let's get into to your rowing. So um, you didn't go to to any other the juniors or under twenty threes though in the beginning of your your rowing career. You went straight into the the senior team. Talk about talk, tell us how that uh, all happened. Yeah, I I went from. <laughs> Australia to college in the US at Princeton University and at that time there was there, like when you went overseas there was no like you, you basically revoke your rights to represent your country for those four years were revoked and so it was like four, four years uh, when where none of none of my performances mattered to anyone in Australia even though I was rowing with guys on the u.s national team the whole time i was over there and you know you've got stuff like ergs that they're, they're easily trans you know the information is um is right there but and and now there's you know we have guys every year uh, that go to college in the u.s and uh row on our national team and the under 23 teams uh over the european or the northern hemisphere summer uh but at the time that wasn't the case so you just you go over there and then you're, you're off the, off the radar, off the scene and off the radar. And, um, but, uh, a guy I went to school with Matt Ryan, he, 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 he stayed basically and he went junior team under 23s and, um, and he was the year behind me in a uh, good mate of mine. So I knew what the process was. I also knew we would train together every time I came back and, I would go down to UTS Rowing Club and train with Tim McLaren uh, down there when I came back from the States and that was with the, you know, some of the guys that were on the national team then. So I knew what the standard was and um, then it was just a matter of, of graduating and then, and then coming back and, and uh, making the team. Yeah, and you were, you were always quite a big uh, erg puller. I mean, even at school, you were, you were pretty quick on the, on the erg. So... Did that? That must have helped you quite yeah. a lot through through Princeton and then into the Aussie team when you got back. Well, it helped on the recruiting <clears throat> the recruiting process, but uh, I think I mean there's a few reasons why I went fast at school. I, I mean I trained my ass off. Like sometimes I look back at how hard we trained at school and be like, and it makes me feel soft now. Um, and so it was a you know I can, I can reflect on that and know that it was a, a high standard. I was also hundred uh, over 100 kilos and then I got probably by the time I was I got to Princeton I was about 105 106 kilos and then by the time I left Princeton I was about 92 uh, so the erg had come down but not not significantly uh, so I think by the time I graduated I was 555 so I went 604 finishing school to 555 lost about 15 kilos along the way um and so i wasn't when i when it's not like my erg numbers were they were they were national team standard but they weren't uh you know they weren't out of this world yeah so so okay so you you're at school and you you're pulling close to six minutes and you're weighing over 100 kilos how come mm. why did you choose rowing then over like rugby because i mean you must have been you must have been pretty pretty sharp at rugby as well then I was I was decent. Um, I, I think the 
there was a like a, a few reasons. One of them being we had a, a successful year, my last year at school and in rowing. Uh, we had really good rugby school as well, so there's a it was an expectation of repeated success in in rugby at that time. It was rowing. We hadn't won anything. Like I literally had not won a race until my final year of school, and then we we won every race and including Henley. And so because we went to Henley, there was uh, U.S. colleges there, and because we won, it attracted some notoriety. Because I was, well, by the time I got to Henley, I was close to 108, so that attracted some attention, and then the ERG score. And simultaneously, playing rugby that year, which is the reason I, was, I got myself heavier in the first place, is I got tackled in training by... Um, by a guy named Dean Mum, who recently retired from international rugby. Um, he tackled me. I landed on my shoulder. I missed four to four weeks of of my final season of school rugby. Uh, when I came back, it was a couple games to go, and I played the season out in the twos. And well, like, realistically, wasn't that good. My hand-eye coordination is pretty shocking. I was, I was. I was good at a at a very good rugby school, but um, you know, I I, I I not particularly like. Yeah, I wasn't a natural at that sport. Not a not a natural at sport uh, at rowing either. But I think you can do a lot in the sport of rowing if you if you put in the work. Yeah, and I think that actually that's a as a really common theme when we speak to a lot of people. I mean, including ourselves, is that. <clears throat> out of all the sports out there rowing is in many ways where talent counts, counts the least and it's usually successful ones are the ones that won it the most and work the hardest which is very rewarding yeah often i mean it's not i, I used to think it was a a linear um relationship between like whoever put in the most work um and it's at the, at the elite level it's everyone puts in the work so it's not it's it has to be something else but uh, you, you can go a long way just on hard work. I mean, there's when there's when there's you say school kids and they're trying to get into their to their first eight, their first varsity eight, whatever the top boat is, and they're like, "How can I do this?" And it's for the most for the most part at most schools, it's like if you just do the training, you will be in that crew. It's like it's not that hard. It's not easy, but. There's only so much talent required, whereas at every echelon higher, whether that's you know the under 21 and 23 senior Olympic level Olympic medalists, that they all require different stratas of talent. But you can get a, quite a long way on work, um, and I know this because I'm, I'm not particularly talented with the sport of rowing. Yeah, so so I mean, you raced. You raced eights at school, then obviously you raced big eights in uh, in the states, and then you come back and, and yeah. you make the the Aussie Olympic uh, Olympic eight for two thousand and eight. So, talk us about that that eight and and how was it going to the games and and being on the start line in the eight. Um, we'll be on the start lines, you know, and, and in, in the Olympic games in the Australian men's eight was that that's it was everything that I wanted it to be but um you know that the, the the period leading up to it was a brief period of time and so what i have now is the period since and because we underperformed it's um and sort of it's it's tinged with a with a layer of disappointment and 
there's also I, I my habit is to is to figure out what wrong what went wrong and then also to take you know the thing I reflect on the most is you know my personal responsibilities so stuff like what I could have done better or differently that may have um, influenced the the result and because for me it was always about competing like legitimately competing Olympic games rather than just going to the Olympic games. Um, you know, all the other stuff, like the, you know, the dining hall, all the rest of it, all the representing your nation on the biggest stage, like all of that is great. Everyone knows that that stuff is awesome, but I was there to compete and we were off the back in the final. And so that's, that's, that's my experience. Yeah. And you can, uh, you can tell that distinction like so quickly when, uh, at the games where you can see the people that are there to, to wear the Jersey or the people that are there to, to race. It's two complete groups of, of people. <clears throat> yeah, and, and 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 being in the my my mindset was was I, I was the, the, of the most serious about the like the competition element, and um, but then you have to live with the performances, which means that you as good good and bad performances. Um, it my my recent experience was you know especially in the men's eight, and, and for for most of my and, and you know most people that are at the Olympic Games in the sport of rowing, they've done more winning than they have losing because most of their experience is domestic and the fact that they're there means that they're towards the top of the pile. And so my experience had been winning races and then I'm like, you know, spat out the back of the field in the final. I'm like, this this, uh, this hasn't happened since, you know, year, year nine at school. Yeah. Except it's the Olympic Games. And I've... I've, I've <laughs> Um, our fin snapped off in the what was a weird set of circumstances. So we were going to race on the the heat, and this storm came through. And it, as it was about to come through, the the quads were coming down, and our quad um, broke the the world record in the heat in Beijing. And I remember the women the women's aid was already warming up, and we were putting our boats on the water. And these officials came down and said. Um, yeah, it's racing's called off for today. And everyone had had, you know, the people that have caffeine before races, myself included, and had taken that step in the, the, in the eight. It's you win the, you win the heat, you go through the final. There's not that many races. There's a heat, there's potentially a rep, and there's a final. So you have to be ready to go for all of them. So was ready to race. And then we, we put the boat away, and I remember a lot of the other crews that we were supposed to race in uh, in both heats, you know, they were going and, and doing 20, 40 minutes, whatever, on the bike or on the erg, something steady just to blow off some of that energy. And I remember just our coach just sending us back on the bus and and no, 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 nothing. Just get on the bus and go back to the village and we'll come out and do the same thing tomorrow. And we had the... Uh, the Canadians in like the reigning world record, um, world champions in the heat. And I felt like if we, if we got to race that day at that point, then we, we could have, we could have given them a race. And what happened was our first race, the fin falls off about 400 meters in. Yeah. I've seen it. We drift all all the way out of our lane where we steer, we're about to actually hit the Canadians. If we do, we get the score from, from the whole event. Instead, we just sort of manually steer back into our lane and paddle it down. 
which yeah. means that our first race was the ends up being the rep. Yeah. And it, and it goes okay, and we can we come second from memory to the US. We're in the final, but then it felt like the final was we just were not we were just not on gear. It was not in the in the right mode. Um, and then the race just completely got away from us. And then it sort of, and then, and then the Olympic Games comes and goes. And then there wasn't much in the way of an assessment. And I was the only person, coach, crew, Cox that was there the next year. Yeah. So I mean, I remember watching that race, and I mean, it it was because I bunked out school for that whole week, basically, just to to watch the games. And uh, I remember seeing you guys the, with the steering problems, and that was was quite a quite a thing. But then, so then you yeah, you, you, you finish yeah. you finish sixth, and then you go back home. And as you said, you're the only one still going on, and then you you back in the eight to 2012. And I mean, that race is such a such a beast of an eight race from from everyone in the field. And you guys finished there, I mean, only just over half a second behind uh, behind bronze place there. So, I mean, that must have been just a crazy race as well. Well, you know, it was, a, it was definitely a better race. And I, I guess, you know, firstly, the, it's, you know, James Chapman from that, from that crew, um, from the Beijing A, came back and he won a silver in London. Um, and... Uh, Sam Conrad came back for a bit. It's not as as the only person to keep rowing, but to to begin with, there's not there's not much of a dissemination of what went wrong, and they replaced the staff and everyone. So for the next campaign, it was it, it felt like starting afresh. But then the bad thing about that is you don't learn from what went wrong last time. But I thought better better to be in at the ground level if I want to have a greater influence of in our performance and and things were trending the right direction the eight that i was in um meddled in in carapiro in 2010 which is the first time an eight an australian eight had medaled the world champs i think since 90 maybe 97 and um and then in the eight was a close fourth in 2011 and so there was an expectation of uh, metal performance in in London, and so great to be in a close race, but half a second was all it was. You know, we we're off metal distance, but then there was two other <laughs> there was still two other crews there, and we also we had the fastest last 500, which meant that we were out of the race and then came back into it to to sort of close the gap. Um, but it was we had a, a lot of really good guys in that crew, people that had shown top class speed at one point or another, but in that combination, we never, never, like never found a, uh, never found easy speed as you do in some crews and, and not others. Um, and so it was, it was always just more hard work than, than it should have been. Yeah. You always have, uh, I think the Olympics, um, you know, you it it's the the racing there, and I think the the eights race. Could, when you think about how how the the eight stays at top speed for such a long uh, long time to finish that close is as a one hell of a race. Um, so Sam, we we want to move uh, forward in time. We w- just wanted to ask you quickly if you've been watching the Australian men's fall. 
um, from last uh, year yeah. and this year racing? Yeah, yeah, I have. Uh, I know those guys. I've rode with a couple of them. I know the other. I mean, yeah, I uh, I in- overlapped with some of them and not others. And it, but they weren't rowing like that when we rode together. Yeah, uh, I love I love what they're doing. I love the fact that they come down. They that they're you know forty two the whole way down the course. Uh, yeah, it's um it's it's really good to see them not only being successful but doing it doing something different. Yeah, I think also from um, from our side, we we had an episode when we spoke about the Second World Cup and we were like really, you know, it's a new strategy. I don't think crews have really pulled that off that successfully and to see them just doing something different, trying something new is, is really cool. But I, I you know, I, I, I wanted to ask you this mainly because of in your book, you talk about when you talk about um, pacing strategies for the the 2k you talk about um rowing for a little bit and you refer to the kiwi pair and how they are different from most crews and where they have a very consistent almost slower start and stay at a very high speed at a consistently throughout the race which is quite a lot relatively slow out of the start relatively slow yeah i should say that they're still pretty bloody quick (laughs) but well and and also you know quick um yeah still i mean the kiwi pair would often still be through the first 500 first, but their first 250, I mean, it's just not slow compared. It's, it's slow compared to a traditional pacing strategy for rowing. Yeah. No, that, that is true. But, but then, um, so then comparing that to the, the Aussie four, it's a complete opposite, uh, pacing strategy. Yeah. Well, that, and that's how I, how I wanted to race as well. That's in the, in the eight, that's, I, I, it was put the foot to the floor and get get to open water and then and then you know we'll start seeing what you want to do there like then <laughs> then it's a different race basically yeah you know? that's exactly and what so, um, was, what max said at the german eight he just said that you you lay it all down in the first 500 and and hopefully you're up and you can manage <laughs> you can deal with the the race from there yeah and then i mean that that's i, I think some people they're happy to race like it takes it, it takes a, a lot of composure and faith in your rhythm to be able to sit as further back than you know that you're capable of, but also have the confidence to be able to sort of go through just to just to find your tempo and your rhythm and know that it's going to be too devastating to for other crews to hang on to. I think it takes a lot of maturity and a lot of skill, which is why not many crews do it and and why it's only available at the at the very highest level it's not even as though every olympic crew has the capacity it's it's like very rare crews are able to do this but it's because it makes the most physiological sense but not the most psychological sense i think it also comes from from winning like i mean uh i would love to to go back and see those first couple races in the in the kiwi pair and see if they were that that relaxed at the start because i think after you've won a few times that you get the confidence of the middle of your race and then that allows you to like yeah okay well we know that yeah, this sure. speed There's is definitely quick. races you can have where you know it's just a matter of like you if, if, if a crew is still there it's just a matter of time before you they're not going to be there you'll wear them down or you'll have you have the capacity to find another gear but most people don't know that they can do that and then and then and then and then even fewer 
um, know that they can, and then have the confidence to be able to go ahead and execute that in a race situation. Yeah, with no. other people, <laughs> like at the same time. That's you know, it's, that's the the challenge of the sport, and and why certain crews are able to distinguish themselves not merely by their records, but also by how they execute their performances. Yeah, that's uh, well put there. So um, we're going to move away from rowing now. We're going to go on to the ERG because you've done some seriously impressive stuff on the ERG and we, we've got a lot to talk about there. So what is it about the, the ERG that you enjoy so much? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, enjoy, yeah, enjoy in a way. As, as, as I said before, it's not enjoyable like watching a movie or eating a pizza. Or <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I, I, it's enjoyable in that you... Your investments in, I mean, in, in terms of effort, they're likely, you can make improvements and in because it's how objective it is, the, it's, it's black and white to whether or not a, a performance is better than another or whether you've made improvement. Uh, I like the comparability, the fact that we all know what a, a six or seven or 535 2K time means and that's, uh, like it's immediately validated, um, and it's hard to encapsulate that elsewhere. I mean, in 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 most other sports, there's an element of subjectivity to it. That in erging, there's uh, there's just not. Yeah, um, Sam, we I, I was interested in reading your book. I. I actually found that you you highlighted technique on the ergo a hell of a lot more than I expected to. But one thing that I'm I'm interested in is to hear from you. What is the biggest difference between um, using the ergo as a tool for rowing, and then rather than just ergoing by itself and training for the ergo um, in itself? Well, I think in both instances you need to still be very technically oriented um the given that the the erging is just it's a this rigorous metabolic assessment right it's going to test your physical capacity and so anything you can in, in do to improve efficiency will be rewarded like if you have however many units of physical ability and but whatever inefficiencies are going to cost you units so you want to be uh as technically efficient as possible in order to maximize your your performance and reduce injury Um, and the additional element if you're using it as a cross-training device for for rowing is that although improvements on the machine will indicate some improvement in toughness or physiology it's not as though that transfers immediately to the sport of rowing and that what makes the go faster uh, although the principles are a lot of the principles are the same what makes the go faster is not the same thing exactly as making a boat go as fast as possible there uh, there's a lot of common ground but they're not the same thing and that's why uh, rowers with it certainly helps to have a a better erg performance all else being equal but it's not as though the fastest ergers are always the fastest rowers yeah is it so like the erg is such a brutal machine and it's like there's there's so many uh ways to to really hurt yourself on the on the erg is there any 
anything on the erg that you like dread doing that like if you you put on your program and you're like holy shit on uh on wednesday or whatever yeah. i've got to do this session and i'm terrified um, for it. well it changed over time i think uh, uh like my later sort of post rowing career erg training i I, well, basically, I, I, as I mentioned at the start, uh, as this was also with Matt Ryan, who I mentioned earlier, we did a, tw- a 24-hour tandem. So you, you basically can break it up any which way you want, but it's as far as you can go in 24 hours with two guys. And because the training for that was all steady state, like all moderate intensity, for some reason after that, I just... I pretty much haven't rode steady state since. I've not really done anything outside of maybe one or two sessions, maybe like just a very small handful. I would have done anything slower than 145. And then the last couple of years, it got to, it got to a point where I wasn't doing anything slower than 130 at all. And so anything slower than that would feels really uncomfortable, mostly because I was training for gradually more explosive events and using the erg less and less for the aerobic portion of my training so it meant that i what that i like steady stuff stuff that's normally easy became uncomfortable and it it, it, it a bit like uh not not quite usain bolt in either talent or explosiveness going for a jog but something along those lines it just felt unnatural um and I was also trying to upregulate some of the more explosive attributes, and I didn't I simultaneously didn't want to um, confuse the physical direction, the physiological direction of what I was doing by throwing in a lot of steady stuff, and then that combined with the 24-hour experience, I just I just did not want to do anything steady or easy or moderate or like it just and so i then i'm I'm almost convinced i've sort of built a training philosophy around that or at least was happy enough to experiment with it in the meantime like how little steady state you can get away with yeah so so then what did your your warm-up look like when you when you started doing those such short pieces and and such high intensity then like because i'm sure when you the warm-up is longer when it's uh when it's a longer piece but so what does that warm-up look like when you you went for yeah, your five hundred, um, well, often the training for it would I, I would do a, a weight session right before the rowing. So when I was training for the thousand meter world record, one of the you know key session leading up to that was four times five hundred meters with five minutes rest at world record speed, which is one nineteen seven. And but I, before that, I did you know, maybe 90 minutes to two hours of, of weights, heavy stuff, and then had a short break and then got straight on the erg. Would have done no more warming up than just, like, taking some strokes just to, like, oh, do I remember how to do this? And then get into it. Okay. And for the world record itself, like, I, this is, the full warm-up was I did some stretching, I walked my dogs for about 20 minutes, and then when I got on the erg, I did three times 100 meters with a minute rest at i think 117 114 and then 111 and then and that was the warm-up 
That's proper. Forty-five seconds. Forty-five seconds of warming up. That's. That, um, yeah, it's. I was just. I was just ready to go, and I know all the literature about how the duration of a warm-up should be proportional to the length of the event, such as the the shorter the event, the arguably the longer the warm-up. You know, you, uh, the, the length of warm-up for a marathon is very short, um, but my instincts told me otherwise, so I just. And I, I and I wanted to do things differently. This is you know, a lot of the training I've done in the last couple of years is purposefully counter to traditional models of training uh, because we already know those work. Yeah, I think it also it goes. You said earlier that um, talking about the sauna that it's still emerging science. I think there's still a lot to learn about. Um, athletes and sport and training and and all the science behind it i think you know we, we we think we know something and then there's the some someone does something or there's someone researches something and then it turns out you don't really know anything at all well i think yeah i think we know practically nothing it can relative to the overall things that could be known about not not just uh you know performance or rowing but the universe has a home in we don't. We know. We know nothing. And uh, so, when people talk in absolutes about training, it's sort of a key indicator that they haven't been as introspective as they perhaps should have been. Because to, to, to know with some certainty indicates that um, you're not. You're not like your yardstick for known knowns isn't uh, isn't entirely accurate. Yeah, so so you you've touched on them a bit, but uh, so you hold these two world records on the erg, the the one k mm. at uh, three thirty nine, and the twenty four hour at um, what's it? Is that one fifty three uh, pace? So I mean they one fifty three six. Yeah, it's like three hundred and eighty kilometers. So they, I mean, they two records basically on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, just talk us through them a bit and and. And how how they how they went? Well, the uh, the thousand meter suits me physiologically much better, and the twenty four hour is just I was able to drag myself. I was able to train for that and and then do the performance. But I think you know, like you guys or anyone else you could think of, maybe five guys that you that you row with every day could could best that performance if they did all the training and then uh, and then showed up on the day and, and did the performance, but that might not be the case for the 1,000 metres. So one was a bit more of a, like, figure out how to train for it uh, and show up on the day, do it, as a, do it as a team, do it as mates. Like, looking, we were, sort of, our last serious racing was the year before. Maddie came back the year after. It was something to do over the winter. We could raise money for charity. Uh, and like it was a fun project, and you know, like I've always enjoyed, the, you know, longer suffer suffering. I think it's just a it's a good way to test yourself, uh, not just you know you, know, you can test your spirit because you, it's you've got a, like a longer longer period of time with which to figure out if you're actually tough or not to get to who you are. I don't know, and that's the part of the reason for me to do it is like I'm wanting to. To, to truly test myself um 
Yeah, because like a shorter a shorter one is like yeah. just power, and the the longer one is is much more mental a mental game towards the end of it. Well, the the shorter one is it's just it's different. It's the same thing, and the and the discomfort is where, where I mean, you, you, when you talk about like the the sense the sensations of how it feels, and I, I tend to try and refer to it as you know as discomfort more than more than pain, but it's that. <laughs> That, that sensation it's just one is longer and more numb and then the the shorter is just it's more searing it's more intense the period after the anxiety of the performance is also higher because you know that you need to be out and on rhythm in five strokes or you've got no fucking chance of success so and then you know that there's you're, you're gonna have a what feels to be a near-death experience just two minutes away um, whereas when you, the 24 hours, it's like, well, we started off, you do, we do 20 minutes, 20 minute shifts the whole way through. So you just know, okay, well, I'm going to do 20 minutes at 153. That's not so bad. And then I'm going to do another 20 minutes at 153. And then you just keep telling yourself that you're going to do that, uh, for you know, like a, a whole day. And then, so it's just, it's different. And the fact that they like, they're, equally appealing to me when I went preparing for it. Um, and just one happened to suit me a lot more and, and is the more elite performance. Yeah. I see on the, on the one K on, at least on, uh, on the concept two website, you, you only hold that record by 0.1 of a second. Uh, yeah. But who's the other guy? I don't know. I, I, I didn't recognize the, the name at all. No, and no one ever has. And, uh, I don't. Yeah, I've, I've never, I've never seen. It's 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 interesting with the validation of, of these performances when you there's historical records that exist that, um, and I'm sort of perhaps treading into controversial territory here, but um, there's uh, it's it, the thing I like about it is the objectivity, um, but then it seems as though some performances are more explainable than others and more believable than others yeah because there there can only be a, a handful of people that can uh, can go under 120 uh, pace for a 1k so i would imagine that it's it's not it's not it's not that i, I think that there's 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 certainly more people than me um i'm definitely just the guy that has the record now that just that did my training and then was able to but i'm not the, the best person in the world for, for for that activity. There's I've met people with far more capacity than me for that event. I'm just decent. Um, but what I'm talking about is people that the other guy that there's some guy that's yeah fraction point one of a second behind me and he may have done it, but there's nothing available on that person that says they did anything else, which is less believable. Like yes. that person would have had to be exceptional elsewhere in the sport of rowing in some other competitive field that they would have, you would know who that person is, or at least that would, you know, would indicate something else to me, but I don't, I don't need to be, it doesn't need to be validated to me. That's not the system. It's <laughs> yeah. just that there's something, some of, so for example, Josh Dunkley Smith, you know, it's, he had a, he, you could see his time is improving. He, he's always known to be as, as a physiological freak, a guy that is expected to break the world record it was it was done in in front of other verifiable athletes at national team testing 
everyone could trust that performance. Yeah. Uh, even though it was faster than perhaps anyone was expecting at that time, it's very believable. And some others, they're just, they're less so. But also, I mean, like, uh, for anyone that's going under, let's say, 540, we, there's, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of numbers and a, and a lot of information on those people. So I understand exactly what you what you're saying there. there yeah. yeah, you know you know who they are. Yeah, and they you you they constantly you know maybe they're not posting all their splits and stuff, but they they you know about them. I mean, there's, you know that they're big, big pullers, and then there's there's information on them. So talking about yeah, there was a guy that on the on the, a Polish guy that was claim, claiming to have gone, I think five forty maybe last year or the year before, and then I think it was sort of pointed out to him. This is this is not a national team guy. This is not a rower. Um, was pointed out to him that that is like a truly exceptional score and perhaps unrealistic that he pulled that. And then it was just sort of like, oh, yeah, okay, I guess, yeah, I guess I didn't do that. <laughs> like, yeah, no, you clearly didn't do that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, do and do you do anything with Concept2? I mean, do you have any affiliation to them? No. Um, I, I mean, I know, you know, people that, that work for them. I've, I, I wrote for their blog for uh, a couple of years um we've been in touch they have my address they know where to send the occasional certificate but uh nothing beyond that okay um so i mean you touched on 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 josh dunkley smith um did you i mean how impressive is that 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 uh, 535 oh that's monster quick yeah i mean it's it's exceptional uh, I, I remember sitting there and it just, I, one of my mates on the team currently sent it to me and, um, and I was sort of sitting there looking at it and I was saying to my wife, who's, she's not a, she's not a rower, but she's, she's, she's done a couple of two Ks and she, she, she knows all about it, but there's no way to convey to her the significance of that performance and how interested could she really be? But I kept just saying stuff like it's just it's just um, like just sort of almost muttering to myself um, because it's it you know as I said just before it's believable but still so impressive. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I also actually funny enough to, saying that I was, I, I try to I was with my a family of mine when that came out and I try to try and explain to my uncle how significant that time was. And it, you could see that you didn't really get it, um, but yeah, no, it's one hell of yeah. a one hell of a performance. So I don't think you, you'd really know unless you you know you're doing a couple of two Ks would give you an idea, and yeah. then you know probably the guys that have been within. I mean, the there's the immediate territory, then there's like the nearby you know guys that have that have been under six minutes and probably have an idea of what that like. It's a it's an it's an a small group of people that, and and then and then a larger group that would, you know, that they've done a two k, but that's so fast that it wouldn't even make any sense. They'd all be five twenty. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. So talking about these these records, and I mean, there's a there's a ton of of records over over all the different distances and and different mm. uh, classes. Which which erg record do you think is is the most impressive? Uh, the 500 or the 2k yeah yeah I mean I th- it, it was for me the 500 and then it 
and then and then Josh's two k, I think. And then that it makes it a matter of one of those. Yeah, yeah. Those are those are two two big Super big ones. Time. So Sam, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna just a bit of a fun question here. I'm gonna make a hypothetical situation here. So you need to convince a person. Let's say. Lawrence sitting next to me here, he's, he's super overweight, he's not in good shape, and he wants to try and uh, lose a couple kilos, get into, you know, uh, get, in, get back into shape. How, he's trying to figure out what he wants to do to, to do that. How do you convince a person looking up to t- take up some sort of exercise to take up the ergo? What would you say to them? Um, well, am I trying to get them to lose weight or am I trying to get them to take up the ergo? No, take up the ergo. Yeah, I don't know if I'd try and convince anyone to do that. <laughs> I thought you. Were, I thought I thought you were gonna no, say I, that. I, I wouldn't. I I I've only ever worked with people that that want to do it. And and if, if even if I've coached younger kids, so say thirteen or fourteen year olds, it's like if you don't want to do this, you don't have to be here. Like actually, like get get out of go get out of here. Like this is the people that want to be here. And so I would. For, if that was the actual case, I, I would. If I if if I thought the erg would be something good for them down the line, I would focus on their nutrition and lifestyle first. Then I would get them through some like range of motion stuff, and most of it with resistance training. And then I would start introducing the erg and um, you know, like assault bike or uh, stuff like that, general like functional fitness. And then I would be like, oh, the erg is good, isn't it? Like it's. Like, and like you have to have that part of you that wants to test yourself and wants to suffer a little bit. And what you you know you want to see what you can do. But if if you are out of shape, you like anything is a, is a test, right? It's, it's yeah. just to, just to go for a jog around the block is <laughs> is a test. So you don't need to be like you need to sit under two minutes at five hundred meters. Like that's uh, it's then then don't have the the skills yet to be able to enjoy that. You got to earn it a yeah. little bit, and there's like a requisite amount of shape that you need to be in, I think, to enjoy erging. Yeah, and I think um, for I mean, I mean, for Rose, for Rose at least, I definitely think there's this culture that the ergo is not just a uh, a tool to test your physiology. It's almost it's almost like it's a rite of passage for <laughs> rowers that you have to go through, and the two k and like five k trials especially are these these critical rites of passage to almost become a rower in the same way that you have people going through rites of passage just become a man. Oh, you, you absolutely, you have to, you have to do it for, it's, it is part of the process and it's not as though you can, although plenty of fast crews have been picked like this, like picking the top eight erg scores you, that in some instances that is the case, but it just, you know, from a selection standpoint or from a, Who's good standpoint? It provides a certain amount of information, but it is—it's a necessary step to take in order to prepare for racing. Because, it, especially at a junior level, you're more often than not in a crew boat. Like the opportunity for individual evaluation um, might not be that apparent. So you, you need to have those people where they can show their their wherewithal or not uh, on their own merits. There's that. People need to need to have that level of exposure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
So now you, you've sort of moved a bit away from the erg and you, you've transitioned into this realm of powerlifting. Tell us a bit about mm. why you've made that, that move and, and how that's going. Um, well, mostly because I've, I've always enjoyed lifting weights, but I, I couldn't do an awful lot of it when I was rowing because for the most part I was trying to keep my weight down and because strength wasn't the limiting factor. And so... You know, particularly around the shoulders, like it was just, I could get too thick and it would limit my, like my sort of rowing functionality. And so, uh, I was incorporating a little bit more of a post London and then was noticing it had some transfer to my power on the erg and, uh, maybe I didn't need to be as light as I thought that I needed to be before, uh, the London games. And then when I started training for, the, the shorter and shorter distances on the erg, the weights became more, more important, 500 meters and 1,000 meters. So, I mean, you, 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 on your Instagram, you posted that you, you're weighing 120 kilos now and you, you seem to eat, I mean, rowers yeah. eat a lot, but you seem to eat an unholy amount of food. Um, <laughs> talk about how did, you, how did you get up to, I mean, is it just clever eating and, and eating the good stuff and a lot of it to, to get up to that weight? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, my natural weight was about 105 kilos. And the, when I was rowing, I was I spent most of my league career in the mid to low 90s. And so when I stopped trying to keep my weight down, I was sort of immediately, you know, over 100 kilos naturally. And then when I actually was trying to add size with food and training, it was it's been quite easy. I sort of went to... 110 quite quickly and then there was another jump to 115 and then i've just you know now i've just just sort of settling at at 120 so i need to consolidate the weight here for a little while yeah um and then sam so moving moving on to another aspect is uh, you seem to be quite a big advocate of yoga um i'm just interested Uh, to, to hear your thoughts if you would recommend it to rowers and just explain your answer um yes definitely uh and the reasons are is that it, it promotes flexibility and mobility uh which is which is great but you can also uh focus on breathing uh and then also the, the practice of yoga when you are focusing on pre- like being present with what you're doing uh, being aware of how your body moves in space, this all has transference to rowing. For me, I started because I figured out that I wasn't especially tall rower. So this is about, I was 14-ish, and I thought, what's a, a good way to improve my range of motion would be through yoga, and then I've basically done it on and off ever since. But because I did it then, um, my flexibility... I've, I've had generally good flexibility because I did that at a young age. And so I think during rowing season, it would be a great idea, but it would be something that if you've got only so much time that you can dedicate to training, you could do more of it in the off season, if that makes more sense. Um, you, you can also do it in and around training for 20 minutes at a time. Like I, I would go to classes if possible. Um, but if you can follow stuff, there's lots of stuff on YouTube. Um, yeah. If you're so interested. 
So we actually, because we do quite a bit of yoga in our team, and you you hit it spot on. It's cool. like when we when we have time. So like the beginning, first three quarters of the season, there's a little bit more of it, and then it becomes once we're starting to to run out of spots for 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 other rowing sessions, then we start to to cut back. But I also think yeah, for the rowing, there's like a there's an element of like you can't just do the yoga, like you can't just rely on your strength the whole time. Otherwise, it becomes like really hard. And you have to really rely on on getting the movements to, right. Yeah. Uh, to, yeah. To, and you also have to relax under under stress. You have to relax and breathe, which is exactly what you have to do in rowing. You 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 yeah. You have to try, but you can't have your shoulders any more tense than they need to be. Otherwise, that's gonna take. It's gonna help not help your movement, and it's gonna not help your not help your stroke, and it's certainly not gonna help your efficiency. So your ability to re- relax under pressure, uh, you're going to have that experience in, in yoga. It's, there's uncomfortable moments and you have to work your way through and you can't, and fighting it is not going to help. Yeah, no, there's, there's, there were a couple of positions when we started off that were extremely uncomfortable. But, yeah, oh, no. rowers, are, rowers are terrible at, uh, <laughs> at, 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 at most yoga. I mean, just from my, from my experience, we've done it off, on and off, uh, over the years, I remember we would do it at the Australian Institute of Sport, but it was it was like you would do it with one of the strength and conditioning coaches. It was a, a women's rugby player, like lovely, but she wasn't a yogi. You would do it on the like on the mats in the middle of the gym, and I'm like I want, if possible, I want yoga studio incense. I want the whole shebang. If you can't if you can't do that, then then scale back. But atmosphere atmosphere helps yeah, yeah no without sure. a doubt so sam we're moving into our last part of the interview we i don't know if you've listened to any of the other ones but we have these questions that we ask every single guest on the show just to um just some fun questions but just um on that okay. you you've done is you've done like a lot on the erg and a lot of other other sports and stuff so if you want to relate any other questions to to anything other than rowing you you're welcome to yes. do that as well okay so the okay, f- we'll do. <laughs> first question is, is if you could race any boat class in rowing at the games, any boat class, which one would it be? Men's eight. <laughs> <laughs> like it would it's 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 my favorite, it's the fastest. Um I if and especially if you said yeah, you can pick the coach, the boat, the people in it, you can plan the training, yeah, the eight, for sure. Cool. That uh, gets us on to our next one. So it's not we're not going to do an eight because there would just be too many people. But if you could choose any three people from any time, any country to row in a in a, in a four with, who would your three crewmates be? Okay. I'll, um, I will because I spent the vast majority of my rowing career rowing with people that are a lot taller than me. I'm going to pick a a crew of people that are. The same height, so same height or shorter. Okay, so I'll pick Carlo Minardi, Italian men's four, Olympic silver medalist in Sydney. Uh, Jason Reed from 2004, gold medal US eight. And I would have Richard Smith from the current German eight. Yes, that's uh, we're gonna that's have to do. We're gonna have to do some research on those, I thought, on those people. I thought I knew rowing well enough to know everyone, but shit, that's really? <laughs> I'm gonna have you to go know, check you, up. Okay, so you need you, you know you know Richard Schmidt is. Yeah, no, we know who that is. 
Okay, so he's current. Well, JR is the bow seat of the USA in Athens. He is a, um, a, a man of some notoriety in the US rowing community. Uh, and Carl, I remember Sydney Olympics when I was about year 17, and I would tend to latch onto the guys that were uh, around my height because I'm like, okay, we're working with the same. Like, I can look at Steve Redgrave and go, oh, that's great, but he's. He's six five. We're not. We don't have a similar package. I, I, I need to learn from guys that have got a, a similar toolkit. And um, so, Redgrave saw one. Our guys, uh, who I knew then and know better since, won bronze, and the Italian guys won silver. Yeah, yeah. no, your 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 four is still gonna cook along. No, for you, sure, without a doubt. So, um, the yeah. next next question, Sam is. Which, what is your favorite rowing race from of all time, from all the events, all the years that you find yourself watching over and over again? Okay, so two races come to mind. One is the the men's eight in Athens. Um, I just like the way the USA went about their that performance, that regatta that year, and because the they were training uh, at Princeton. Uh, around the same time, I could, I could see those guys doing some of their training, and I know some of them personally, including Jr. and um, uh, and I was you know, in college at the time, and they were the crew that, if it weren't for the if it weren't for the Australians, I would have loved them to have won. Um, but it was the way they went about it. And then the Cox pair in Barcelona in '92. Have you guys seen that? Yes, race? that is one of the best races that's ever. A, that's yeah. a good one. That's a really good one. I, I raced the Cox pair yeah, in 2015 and, and I watched that race. It was seriously awesome. Well, that was the, that's the Cox pair is the other, the other boat class that I would like to race at the Olympics because I thought it probably would have suited me and I've never, I've never rode a Cox pair. Oh, you need it's to get a unique, one. It's <laughs> a unique yeah. experience. We, we had to train. Yeah. We don't have a Cox pair in South Africa. So when we trained here, you had to load every session 60 kilos of plates into your boat. <laughs> And row that was seriously in the, in the impressive. In the bow, in the middle of the boat, in the stern. No, we put them in the bow because we just used the the really big pair, and then we just put them in the in the back. I can't imagine that would have helped the trim of the boat. No, it made balancing the boat really tricky, but it actually made getting into the boat over there really, really easy. So, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, if you're if you're listeners and if you guys haven't spoken about this race before, I remember watching that at school, and this is we only had VHS. And we used to break into my um, uh, my coaches, who's the current coach of the Australian Men's Eight. We'd break into his office and watch races on. There's no there's no YouTube then. Yes. Um, to watch some of these races, and I remember thinking, they, I still watch it now. Like, how can they get through their their a length of open water down in the last two fifty? Yeah. And they win by a comfortable margin in the end. No, that I is. I won't say who wins. It's such a, <laughs> like, it's such a crazy race. We'll we'll, just, we'll put a. I, we'll, I don't feel like I shouldn't give it away. Like it's a spoiler in a movie. Yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll put a link in the in the the show notes so that uh, people can go watch that because that's a great race. And then your other race, that eight, that's with uh, Brian Volpenheim in the yeah. in the stroke seat of that US eight, who's maybe yeah. those. That's some of the best rowing you can you can go and watch. Actually, is him in the stroke seat there. Yeah, the commentators love him right, in, so that, he, in that race. Yeah, so him he in the stroke seat. He used to row the pair with Jr., who's the guy I mentioned from my yeah. four. He was in the bow of that eight, and they were two of the four guys that won the the Coxless four in Lucerne that year that pipped 
um, the Canadian World Champions and the Pinsent Four. So there's four guys from the USA that won gold in Athens that at the in the 2004 Lucerne World Cup where they had those the those two awesome fours that went that had that that nail bite of a race that went gold and silvers so the Canadians and the British. They beat both of them in Lucerne a couple of months before. Yeah, yeah. Some interesting stuff. So um, this next one, uh, you don't have to to be diplomatic if you don't want, yeah. and you can uh, say it how you will. If you were in charge at World Rowing, what would you change? Uh, oh, very simple. I would make the races. I would like I'd at least have a thousand meter events. Yeah, I would make the races a thousand meters just for my for. For me, <laughs> for, for my, and because I think it would be more exciting. I don't know if you can be in charge of world rowing though and race at the same time. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Um, well, still, I still need you a thousand meters. Yeah, that would. Uh, people like me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know we get a uh, we ask a question all the time, and and the two things are making uh, being able pe- allowing people to race more than once, so making some sort of rules to to allow that, and making the the races very short. To make it more yeah, but exciting. are people allowed to race more than once? Yeah. Yes, but it's like uh, it's like it's more difficult. I think uh, what did uh, Drew said? Uh, he said that if you could limit the amount of people that could that each country was allowed to bring, would force people to mm. then like. So if you can only have ten guys, but you have all these events open, you force multiple countries to row multiple events, which uh, would make it quite exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it might possibly. I mean, I I've always had some issue with the fact that a swimmer of comparable standard yeah. can win multiple medals. Yeah, I know without a and doubt. You can win a medal for you can win a medal for swimming a heat at the Olympic Games. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, like who we were talking to actually that said that the, the someone I think it was Drew. He said that the the, the Hamish Bonds and the Eric Marish deserve to be able to go home with three medals because yeah. they. If you compare the the level of athlete to swimming, for example, if you had that kind of level of athlete, they would be going home with more than one medal. So I mean, right. you wanna you wanna we're showcase the, the best with that with that with that issue. Yeah, you know there are some truly elite. I mean, by the same logic that the the U.S. basketball team should get to go home with a couple of medals. Yeah, right. So you know whoever LeBron James or Michael Jordan back in the day when it was dream team and they were more dominating than they are now he he gets one gold medal whereas Carl Lewis gets five um, I, I think there's a way to make it entirely equitable which is you know, perhaps some of the issue with the, the rearranging of the, the boat classes for the Olympic Games I mean there's so many um, vested interests and, and way that, ways that you can look at it people that are going to be offended by whatever decisions are made um, but they're all being made for the betterment of the sport I think we get a given how um, r- relatively not entirely unavailable but it's not an easily accessible sport for most people we get pretty good numbers of participation relative to a lot of sports at Olympic Games. So it's been this recent experience that they've been cutting down, um, but that's because they've got to make way for lots of ridiculous sports. So <laughs> that's, that's the way it's going. Yeah. yeah. 
So our next question, it's uh, usually a bit of a secretive question because some people don't want to uh, give up their, their 2K PBs on the ERG, but uh, yours, we're just going to check that it's uh, it's 549, right? Yeah, 549.4, and, you could, and I'm so secretive about it. It's on the bio of my Instagram, and not because I think it's anything you should know about me, but because people ask ask me all the time, so it just that, that saves me having to be asked. So not then, that I, so, that I don't mind you guys asking. I wish people walked around it with it tattooed on their head. Yeah. <laughs> so then, what is your? So we know your one k and your two k. So then, what's your five k? My five k. I only did one serious five k um, because we did six k's most of the time. Oh, well, then but, you can you can give us your six k then. But, but hey, I'm going to do the five k because shorter for me is better, um, <laughs> and that was fifteen forty. Okay, that's uh, that's also not uh, not too shabby at all. Sure, there's a lot of speed not too there. shabby, but it, it it's you know not compared to, to to some of the you know compared to Joe Public, yeah, it's decent, but um, it's not exceptional. Well, we'll just go with your your one k of two thirty nine. That yeah. uh, that will 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 we'll promote with that one. I was I was happy with the the five forty nine because I did that two years after I'd raced and entirely on my own training and I did every session by myself. Well, I did every session of, of, but one in that entire prep by myself and I didn't do anything over 30 minutes. I did <laughs> one 10K, was like 34 minutes and everything else was 30 minutes or shorter on the ERG. Okay, yeah, that's, that's, that's a bit So then uh, our next one is if you could choose uh, a different sport to go to the Olympics in, uh, what would it be and why? And it also has can be something that like you would like to do, but that you you're just never going to be good at any uh, given the chance. Okay, so these are probably okay. Well, I would I would do the, the sports that I think I would have a decent chance. Um, might be either I think in another life I could have been an alright track cyclist or a speed skater, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> or a wrestler. Uh, but if, if we're talking about if I'm not me, then maybe basketball or like a, a sprinter. Okay. Like yeah. A 100, 200. Yeah, yeah the, the, the gladiator event there. The gladiator meter. event. Yeah, that's a big one. The track cycling actually is a very popular pick for rowers. Especially no, heavyweight rowers. Yeah, heavyweight yeah, rowers, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but it's not you know, un, unreasonable and I think there's a lot of people could be and it's have proven to be and are proven to be exceptional road cyclists. Um, I would, I'd imagine I would do a right, a little bit better on the four-man pursuit given that you get a little, lots of little rests in there as well. Yeah. <laughs> be nice for me, I think. You get to, you get to go, go, go and then have a, a relative rest and, and it's about four minutes and uh, that would suit me but basketball and i know this from personal experience would not suit me but i remember seeing dwight howard eating chicken nuggets mid-competition and thinking that looks good yeah i'm not i'm not i'm not doing that i'm not having chicken nuggets mid-competition yeah Yeah. that looks good so anyway sam that brings us right to the end of our interview um we've had a blast are there any parting words for our listeners or there's a is there anything else that you would like to to chat about yeah, I guess. Well, you can find me on Instagram at Sam Locke. That's um, generally where I post most of my stuff. I have a podcast of my own uh, called Lots of Watts. That's available on iTunes. 
Uh, I recently released all of the information, um, my full training diary for the 12 weeks leading out to my 1K world record. Uh, I sell a, a customized 2K program. So you give me your target 2K score and I give you a 12-week training program. And the kicker in this is it's three to four hours a week only on the ERG. And you can stretch that out with some more you know, weights and cross-training um, if you'd like, but I think this is a way to get faster in 12 weeks in a couple hours, in a few hours a week. Um, and I offer online coaching. You, you can find that at uh, on my Instagram or you can go to the whatfarm.com uh, and uh, I sell t-shirts as well. So just check it out, buy my stuff. It means I can do more training and talking to nice people such as yourselves. Yeah, yeah, of course. And uh, just on that, I mean, your website is awesome. So we'll and we'll put links to to your to all that on uh, in the show notes. Cool, so that helps. If any of the listeners want to go to the show wanna, notes, then go to the show notes, people. Yeah, for sure. And then uh, you've also just done. Uh, you just uh, released the app, hey? Oh yeah, <laughs> I have an app. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did forget about that. Um, yeah, that actually is probably the easiest. Uh, I mean, it's probably the cheapest of the things that I sell and um, really useful. I wanted that for myself. Um, and cause I didn't, I didn't have it. I had an ERG calculator on my, on my phone and it chat itself. And then I didn't have one and I wanted a one rep max calculator. Cause I kept having to go to the bodybuilding.com website every time I wanted to do a, a simple calculation. And then that there's a calorie estimator function, which you use occasionally. And I thought, I want one of those things in the same app. Maybe some other people do too. And the only way to get it made for me was to get it made and then make it available for everyone else. So that's what I'm doing now. And that is the What Farm app available now on iPhone, on Android. Soon, I am told by my my web nerd. <laughs> right. Um, and then on your on your podcast, you said it's on iTunes, but it's also I found it. I use a Pocket Cast for all my uh, podcasts, and it's on there as well. So can uh, definitely find it wherever you want. And yeah, uh, thanks. Yes, for my for my podcast, it's on. What did you say it was on? It's Pocket Cast. Uh, Pocket Cast. I I use yeah. We use Pocket Cast to listen to to podcasts on Android, and it's such an awesome app. So. Well, it's also you can you can listen to it at my website. Yes. under podcasts, it has yeah. every episode there. So, um, geez, if you if you want to listen to it, there is a way. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, thanks so much for for giving us a huge chunk of your time and uh, really really All right, insightful Jake, and Lawrence, awesome. Um, thank you for your time. Are you are you guys are you guys rowing this summer? Are you are you doing worlds? What's going on? Uh, we are. We took a bit of time off at the beginning of the year because we actually last year. It, um, we didn't do so well, so we took a bit of time off to kind of like reflect and uh, recharge the batteries a bit. And then we started okay. training and everything's been going well. So hopefully we should be at World Champs. Oh, okay. Uh, in what boat classes? Uh, we're not sure yet. We're not sure yet. That's, uh, that's... That'll be up to the coach to decide. Yeah. Okay, you just keep it domestic until, until the World Champs? Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Sam, and hope you have an epic week. Great. Good luck. Good luck for the World Championships, whatever crew, uh, cruise or crew you happen to be in. All yeah, right. Thanks. Sweet. Thanks. And hopefully we we'll see you around sometime. Yeah. All right. Thanks, fellas. Cheers. Have a good day. Cheers.
Cool, and that's a wrap for our epic episode with uh, the Watt Farm, Sam Locke. Yeah, it was really good chatting to him. We learned quite a lot. He definitely brings a, a unique perspective, especially because of all his experience on, on Ergo and his uh, um, his different approach to a lot of things. But it was really cool. We learned a lot. It's uh, impressive when you think about how quick he does at 1K under 120, hey? Yeah, I know. That's a, it's a long time to be sitting on that much power. It's it's pretty crazy. Yeah, and I hope you guys learned uh, just as much as we did and enjoyed it just as much as we did. Um, yeah, thanks again for tuning into the show. And yeah, let your mates know about us. Share the show. Go listen to our other, our Regatta Madness and our Regatta uh, and our Hype Train. Uh, they're two other episodes that we do. And let us know what you think. You can now find us on Instagram and Facebook, and you can G, uh, you can find us on our website as well. Lawrence is losing his shit here. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can and you can also WhatsApp us. Uh, the numbers in the the show notes below. So yeah, okay, Sweet. cool. We're out. Sweet. Cheers, guys. Enjoy the weekend. Bye. <laughs> okay, so we lost it. You start here then. I think we. I think we'll have enough. No, I'll, I'll go. Let me go. Let me try once. I'll get this thing. I'll just stay. I'll just stay thing. Okay, it does make sense. It does make sense. <laughs> if you just read it. Okay. You know what this thing. This thing means and. And yes, I know, bro. <laughs>